Tanisra is a former monastic in the Ajahn Chah tradition, and she's um, English and Irish? Originally, yeah. Originally English and Irish. Started. Oh, and you just got your American citizenship. I did. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> um, and she, and with her husband, Kitty Starrell, started the Damagiri uh, uh, Retreat Center in South Africa in response to the HIV and AIDS pandemic. And she and, um, and she is also one of the teachers on the latest round of the Community Dog Leaders Program at Spirit Rock. And we're very glad to have her, and thank you, Kinesa. Enjoy it. Thanks, thanks. Thanks, Davida. Uh, well, welcome, everyone. Um, I'm so uh, glad that we have today to focus on practice together. I'm so grateful that you've come to join in this day. Um, originally, uh, before, uh, when we were thinking about doing this day, I was originally thinking about doing it with Gina, and then she left and had to, um, not had to, but she went to do a, a month-long retreat at IMS. But we were thinking about dedicating this month at New York Insight to Earth and, and culminating in Earth Day to dedicate it to focusing on the Earth and what's happening and how to bring practice forth in response to, to you know, the kind of meltdown that's happening globally. So I want to touch into that and somehow bring the themes of practice and drawing from not only um, the Theravada practice, the insight practices, which is the ground and the root, really, of all Buddhist practice, but also draw in and bring in themes from the Mahayana school uh, related to practices and, and uh, philosophy and, um, and the depth of the uh, Kuan Yin Dharma or and so this isn't something that's often um, um, blended or mixed with the Theravada and it's something that, that my partner Kirisara and I over the 20 years that we've been together and been practicing together these two strands of the, the, the foundational practices of mindfulness that you find in the Theravada and in the insight schools, the Vipassana schools and then these practices around some of the Mahayana um, expressions of compassion and depth wisdom, which you find in the Kuan Yin Dharmas. So I want to try and bring touch into those. You know, the day we can't do a lot, but to touch into those themes and bring them forth in relationship to actually being in the world and being awake in the world and responding from that wakefulness to the crucible of what's happening in our times. Because it, we're in unprecedented times, um, and it calls for uh, the depth of whatever we can bring to the situation that we find ourselves in on the planet to, together to be able to find ways of responding. So today, um, I'd like to introduce the topic in a minute and reflect around the themes that I've been considering and thinking about. And then we'll also do a little bit of um, process work together so uh, that you can deepen into your own focus around some of the themes that I'll be introducing. Um, and then, so we'll do that in smaller groups and then we'll do that in a larger group. And then we'll do some of the Kuan Yin practices that, have, that are very ancient, that we've um, translated and brought them into more contemporary forms. 
Um, and we'll have a time to do some of that and some of the meditations around the themes of Kuan Yin and culminating in the ceremony which we'll do this afternoon you've got the text of the ceremony you can just put that to one side for now I'll go through it and explain it we're not going to be doing that this morning and also to mention that this is a shortened version the actual original ceremony which is um, comes from um, a particular sutra where Kuan Yin uh, figures quite prominently. Um, it's called the Dharani Sutra. It's a Mahayana Chinese Buddhist text, um, which which is focuses around a very long mantra, which is connected with um, the subtler practices around Kuan Yin. So this te- this ceremony has emerged from that sutra, and it's usually longer. But I know in New York we don't have a lot of time, <laughs> as Bill Woody forms in a Chinese monastery. <laughs> So it's shortened, and it, but it still gets to the, the essence. And, it, and I think we'll take the whole of the day and everything that we've discussed and been with and practiced with and everything that we're with, and only, not only personally but collectively, we'll take that into the ceremony and dedicate it uh, for, for every all beings, ourselves, our families, our communities, and the earth. Particularly the earth is very central to what we'll be focusing on today. Okay, so that's just a just a brief synopsis of the day, and then if you can stay on and join us, we have a break at four o'clock, and at a five until seven tonight, I've invited and um, New York Insight's been really gracious in allowing us to use the space. An old friend of mine and a dear friend of mine called Andrew Harvey, and he is uh, one of the leading mystics and authors and sacred activists of our times. He's, he's um, originally from um, India. He was born in India in a colonial family and um, was uh, educated in the UK from when he was about eight or 12 or something years old. He's a graduate from Oxford, one of the youngest fellows in Oxford and majored in Shakespearean studies, particularly focusing on themes of madness in Shakespeare, which is very pertinent to our times. <laughs> Um, and went on to co-author books like the Tibetan Book of the Dead with, uh, with Sogyal Rinpoche and wrote, has written over 30 books on mysticism um, and different faiths. He's a Rumi scholar. He's incredibly brilliant and lucid and passionate, particularly about what's happening on the earth. And we're going to have a dialogue tonight about that and what is it to awaken in our times and what is it to respond from awakening what is it for us as as vipassana or insight or buddhist practitioners what does it mean for us so we're going to explore that and talk about that Um, andrew's been down to work um, with us in south africa and um, he met when he was there a very um, dear friend of ours sister abigail Tleko, who has been for over 50 years involved in community service and uh, she's just a very saintly and amazing woman. And one of the things that she's been particularly involved with is, is helping to support child-headed households and orphans made vulnerable due to the AIDS pandemic, which hit very, very severely in the area that Kiri Saro, my partner, and I um, have been working and living in the last 18 years, KwaZulu-Natal. So he was very moved by Abigail because she's just this phenomenal force of nature. And um, he helped us initiate a project to uh, find her and her children a proper home. So that five until seven we're dedicating as a benefit. 
um, for Abigail and her Kurungile project, which um, she started a new project. She's in her 70s and she just started yet another project. <laughs> She's got, looks after 20 kids. So if we think we have a hard time, so <laughs> I just remember someone like her and what she does every day. She gets up at three in the morning to practice every day because that's the only quiet time she gets. And then she's just like on the move the rest of the day. And she does it all on this depth of, she's very much like a Kuan Yin, on this depth of faith and, and wit. You know, she's got a lot of canniness about her to negotiate some very complex territories that uh, she's moved and lived through. As, a, as an African woman in the midst of um, British colonial apartheid, KwaZulu-Natal, not easy territories, and, and has emerged very beloved within, within all communities, uh, all our local communities, not only just the African community, but also the, the white community. Um, so, you know, she's a real modern hero. In fact, she was awarded the 2009 Unsung Hero Award and um, flown from uh, KwaZulu. She never left the country before to San Francisco, and San Francisco Insight helped host her. And it, you know, she was just like she she gave a talk in front of the Insight group. It's about two hundred people, and she was completely unfazed. Just sat there and you know, just talked about her life and gave a blessing and. You know, someone that's lived in these very a very deep rural area is just able to make that transition with great fluidity into whatever situation she's in, which is something of the essence of this Kuan Yin energy. It's very, in essence, Kuan Yin is is formless, emerging into form. It's about the depth of compassionate response, and and the ability to shapeshift almost into whatever response, whatever form or whatever kind of style is needed to, to meet the situation. So it's not about rigidity or fix, fix, being fixed, but being able to have some fluidity and to hear the deeper flow of what's going on and, and not being um, seduced or hijacked by the glamour of the world and the the, the forces of the of what actually undermines us and and deludes us, but we can talk more about that later. But for now, <clears throat> let's just begin the day formally, and again, just to welcome each and every one of you uh, to our day of practice. So, what I'd like to do is to um, invite you into your body, into your presence, into your breath. And we'll, we'll start with the chant of the refuges. It's a very simple chant. And those of you that were here on Friday night and joined in that evening, you remember the chant. It's uh, very, um, it's just very simple. It just has three words, four words, Bhutang, Dhammang, Sangang, one day, one day means I, I bow or honor or I revere the Buddhang, the Buddha, both the historical Buddha and those that are awakened, but more immediately this internal capacity for wakefulness. This Buddha is connected with the innate wakefulness, the innate knowingness, literally means buddhi means to know that which knows, 
which is present, which is aware. So aligning, as we start our day, aligning with the Buddha, here and now, aligning with the Dhamma. The Dhamma is all that it's manifesting and unfolding, that we can reflect on, the sounds, our reactions to the sounds, our feelings, the body, the early morning, whatever we're present with is as it is, it's the Dhamma. Rather than reacting or pushing it away or wanting to be somewhere else, we open to the moment and reflect on it for the sake of discerning wisdom. And Sangha, being together as a Sangha, as a group committed to awakening, supporting awakening and being the essence of Sangha, being able to practice with our experience rather than just being in a state of reactivity. So this is, we're beginning the day with aligning with these timeless principles. So I'll chant a refuge chant and please feel free to join in as we start to establish ourselves within these ancient timeless qualities of awareness and presence.
As you do so, feeling the breath energy suffusing through your whole body, all the cells, through the blood, through the bones, through the marrow, through the flesh of your body. And then on your out breath, just softening and letting go of the tensions that are held within your body, softening the jaw, softening the shoulders, the belly, softening the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet. And again, just deepening your inhalation. Until you can't breathe in anymore. Just feeling, maybe holding for a second that breath, feeling the breath suffusing through the body, then breathing out. Letting go, letting be. This is a way of helping establish your attentiveness here and now, and encouraging more embodiment, being within your body, being with the rhythm of the breath, allowing the mind, which is so quick, so variable, so entangled in thought and thinking, Allowing the energy of the mind to settle on the slower rhythm of the body and the slower rhythm of the breath. And allowing the breath and the awareness of the mind to suffuse through the body. So the awareness of the mind illuminates and suffuses and heals and calms the body and the mind steadies on the slower rhythm of the, of the body. So slowing down, encouraging yourself from the busyness and the, the speed of everyday life. Encouraging yourself to be slow enough, patient enough, gentle enough to be here. humble enough to receive the body and receive this rhythm of the breath. And again, as you breathe out, resting more in your seat, your cushion, your chair, to allowing the tension to dissolve and trusting the earth will hold you. Your seat will hold you. And as you breathe in, just feeling this subtle lengthening through the spine, opening through the chest and the torso, softening down through the belly. So this awakening is very gently 
activated within the body. And as you breathe out again, letting go, letting be. And beginning to allow the mind caught up in its thinking and its planning and its discernments to rest in its ground, this ground of awareness, this ground of presence, this ground of knowing, this ground of listening, inner listening. This is the ground of Kuan Yin, that which is present, aware, listening. Listening to your breath, listening to your being, listening to your body, listening to your feelings, listening to the sounds of the world with an easefulness that is just simply here. Allowing yourself to just disengage from the momentum of the cognitive mind as it's thinking, as it's thinking and thinking. It's like you just unhook, it's there, but you just unhooking and it's like resting in the belly more, resting in this heart of awareness. And allowing this rhythm of the breath to steady your attentiveness as you rest in the innate quality of beingness here and now, that's simply aware, simply receptive, simply listening, trusting the ground beneath you, trusting the ground of the heart, that which is receiving the experience of the moment.
As you start to establish a sense of being here more fully, noticing that sound arises, touches, hearing consciousness, and then dissolves into the background of listening, thoughts, flicker, feelings, emerge, appear for a while, and then shift and change, sensations the same. Just asking a gentle inquiry question, what remains? What is always present? Or another way of asking this inquiry is, who is listening? Not to find a particular answer, but just to point the mind, to point the mind back away from its obsession with the objects of experience to the one experiencing. That which is receiving experience.
Just noticing each sound, each feeling, each thought, appearing and dissolving back within this spacious imminence of presence that can just know this is how it is. like stars appearing in the night sky. The phenomena appears, but then dissolves into the vast expanse of the now, of the mind. Just as the stars dissolve into the infinite dark space, just noticing this quality of the mind, which is knowing and which into all things dissolve, all things emerge. And yet it can't be known as an object, it can't be captured, can't be defined. What is that?
It's said in the Zen teaching of Huang Po that we search the world for the jewel that already rests within our heart. Returning home, touching our own heart, listening into our own heart, this heart here and now, it's nowhere else, never has been anywhere else. Waiting to be recognized. This heart that knows its intimacy with all things, that hears all things, that rests within all things. Heart of presence, of awareness, of listening which can't be captured, which can't be known as an object. And yet it's most true. This heart within which we find peace, resolve, healing, that is not personal and yet is intimate. And that has this fundamental nature of knowingness, intelligence, brightness. Resting here and now within the heart within the heart, that which is listening at ease to the sounds of the world. So, um, 
So to touch on and touch into the themes of our practice today, uh, beginning with Kuan Yin. This, this day is called Kuan Yin for the planet, bringing the Heart Sutra down to earth, which feels like a very ambitious subject. <laughs> and, and in a certain way, when you touch into a Dharma theme, it's a bit like a hologram. It's a doorway into so many different dimensions. And particularly if you touch into these themes like the Heart Sutra or Kuan Yin, there are many different dimensions of practices and teachings. So I want to try and just take the essences of what's been important for me in terms of how to support the practice of awakening and being here in this world in a, in a way where one can re- maintain one's own connection to the Dharma and be as responsive and as possible to the world around us or the world within us. And then to keep exploring within that context these deepening teachings that are about leading to freedom, leading to depth of peace, leading to insight. So Kuan Yin is uh, historically the whole lineage of Kuan Yin goes back into the mists of time, um, back into, it's not you know, really, Kuan Yin in some ways is a, a mythological figure, a mystical figure. There's not really a definite physical presence as far as I know, someone called Kuan Yin, like we might relate the Buddha to a historical figure. But nevertheless, something has emerged around this lineage and this energy that is focalized around this being called Kuan Yin. Kuan Yin is the Chinese transliteration of the word Avalokiteshvara, which is a Sanskrit. And of course, Avalokiteshvara is pertinent within the Tibetan, Chinese, Korean, Mahayana schools of Buddhism. And previously, if you trace back Avalokiteshvara, it seems to have emerged from some kind of practices in the early centuries of the common era that were focused around a being called Lokeshvara, who was connected with Shaivism or Shiva-type practices, um, and became a sort of a, a, an energy or a person or a deity or a figure that was connected with the power and the depth of both wisdom and compassion, the place where wisdom and compassion is fused, the place where being, the wisdom isn't divorced, it isn't a wisdom or transcendence that's divorced from the forms of the world. Many religions posit the um, the transcendent, whether it be God or heaven or Nibbana, as, as deeply separate from the world of manifestation and the world of form. And there's, there can be in that a fundamental split and a historical inheritance from that split that divorces us from our ability to fully respond uh, and be respectful enough to the sacredness within the, within the form, within the body, within relate the relational, within the sexuality, within the earth. All of these things have been historically split away from the spiritual, from the religious. But in a certain way, Kuan Yin is an archetype or a template for the complete fusion um, and the non-dual nature of 
spirit and matter, form and emptiness, masculine and feminine, um, in all these different ways that we, that we, the inner and the outer, the transcendent and the world, wisdom and compassion, all of these things that, that, that in a way there's a, a range of manifestation that are, that are ultimately not, this, you know, whether it's masculine or feminine or form or emptiness, wisdom, compassion, they're both rooted in the same suchness. It all emerges from the one mind, from the one heart. There's not a distinct duality and yet somehow we, we create in practice often this distinction between the peaceful and the rest of it. <laughs> you know, and as you know, for those of you, as I have done many years of insight practice and retreats, you know, there's a real difficulty in integrating that retreat experience into everyday life and or bringing everyday life into the sacred, into the, into the realm of what we can contemplate and work with and realizing the, the curriculum of our everyday life is part of the very, very grist for what we need for our awakening. You know, and our awakening and the expression of our awakening is not divorced from being expressed within the realms of form in the times we're in and what's pertinent to our times. So this template of Kuan Yin you know, is, uh, has this ideal within it of a heroic kind of being, the Bodhisattva, or someone that is very rooted in the depth of wisdom, the depth of understanding what's called the shunyata, or the basic so-called emptiness, which means the lack of substantiality within all manifestation. You can't find a core substance that you can say, this is absolutely an unchanging principle. Everything's static, everything's fluid, and everything is actually porous. And therefore it's called shunyata, means it's empty, empty of solidity. You can't, you know, this, this um, depth of wisdom isn't, is actually entering into that in a very deep way as a reality. The insight starts to emerge that because of this depth of reality, that actually what the experience is as an experiential level is that we live, the other side of emptiness is that we live in a deeply interdependent reality or a deeply intimate reality that we can't divorce you know, our, ourselves from everything around. It's, it's a completely interconnected dynamic, and yet we have this illusion of somehow cutting out from a seamless universe something called a me, something called a you, something called an America, something called a Europe, something called a South Africa, and, you know, something called land, something called ocean, and yet, of course, they are relative distinctions that hold truth. But on a deeper level, each thing is connected with everything else. This is one of the fundamental insights of the Buddha in the night of his awakening. Everything is interdependent and interrelated. And so what does that really mean? It means that ultimately that you know, there is no enlightenment, awakening outside of this moment. There is no special place to go to. You know, this is it. And you know, awakening is here. Uh, there's nothing, nothing that we're going to find that somehow is going to be different than where we are here and now. The awakening isn't about searching for something else, the jewel outside that we run to try and find in the pathways of the world, but actually recognizing the inherent jewel of awareness, of wakefulness here and now. 
and demonstrating that within the world. So this is within the territory of Kuan Yin, as this diffusion or non-dual experience and insight demonstrated within the world. Kuan Yin or Avalokiteshvara, Avalokiteshvara and Kuan Yin appear in four main Mahayana sutras. Uh, the Shurangama Sutra, the Heart Sutra, the Lotus Sutra, and the um, Dharani Sutra. And each of them posit different dimensions of the, of the um, expression and teaching and practices of Kuan Yin from the most, from the, the, the root of compassion, the merciful, and the responsive in the in the in the Lotus Sutra, chapter 25 of the Lotus Sutra is called the Universal Door Chapter, and it's one of the most popular practices. Is reciting this whole chapter, in not in Western Buddhism, but you know in in Asian Buddhism, Mahayana Asian Buddhism. This some people just take the whole practice of reciting this text. Uh, it's a very devotional practice. It's a very focused practice, and it's really a practice about invoking the power of Kuan Yin. It's, a, it's about invoking mercy, it's about voc- invoking a ten- tenderness, and it's about invoking the power of Kuan Yin. And in this chapter of the Lotus Sutra, it said that Kuan Yin has the ability to manifest in different forms. It's called transformation bodies, that, that she will respond when there's true faith and calling on the principle of Kuan Yin, that there is a response. One of the one of the lines from the practices that emerge from this chapter is that the res- the way and the response are intertwined inconceivably. The way and the response. You practice the way. You practice the Dharma, and there's a response. A kind of mysterious response. Stuff happens. Uh, and that that way and the response are intertwined inconceivably. It means it's inconceivable. We don't know what the responses will be. And so in a way, this is a faith-based practice and therefore it's not the most popular practice in Western expression of Buddhism, which generally is a more secular and increasingly science-based kind of um, inquiry practice. But I want to mention this practice because it's actually very has a lot of beauty and a lot of depth. And what is really understood by the the uh, Chinese masters of old and the masters of old that taught this that actually Kuan Yin ultimately isn't um, sitting on a, a cloud somewhere in in some other realm. But Kuan Yin is talking about the deepest dimensions of our heart. Kuan Yin is talking about the depth of, of inherent wisdom and compassion within this heart. Kuan Yin ultimately isn't Chinese, isn't Western, isn't the figure sitting on the shrine. Kuan Yin is this heart, this responsive, awakened, sensitive, listening, present, uh, primordially wise quality of awareness that we start to really tap into when we practice meditation or in a contemplation, we start to listen into Kuan Yin. So when we practice, when we activate our practice, when we put practice into our life, there's a response. And it's a response that comes and emerges beyond the cognitive strategies of the usual way that we go about 
our lives. And so therefore it's why it's called inconceivable because sometimes those responses can be of a quantum nature, a sort of intuitive leap of understanding or something that we might have been struggling with to try and figure out and then we just put it down and let go and then we just aware, we just listen, we keep listening and then something unfolds. I don't know if you ever had that experience but something becomes clear or we know what to do suddenly or not to do. And so this is the territories, or we don't really know how to respond in life. And everything we've tried hasn't worked. And so this practice encourages to go back to the simplicity around this practice of, in the Lotus Sutra and the 35th chapter of the Universal Door is the most essential practice was called holding the name of Kuan Yin. It's a mantra practice, it's a devotional practice, it's the bhakti practice. Um, of Buddhism is just holding the name, the sacred name, the holy name, and just working with the name with a, as a samadhi, focusing, working, deepening, and allowing that to take us into the depth of just being present and awake, which is a trusting, opening state where we strip away all of the strategies and we wait. You know, we wait and hold to have faith to this heart, and then seeing what emerges from there. And then it's said, you know, it's mysterious because the manifestation, when there's a calling out or an asking for help, it's the moment when we know we can't do it on our own. It's the moment of, it's a very profound moment when everything we've tried isn't going to work. And it's a moment that we're coming to on our planet where all our strategies, when the patterns that we keep repeating are actually driving us to destruction. And it's a, moment when, it's a moment when the hubris of our human certainties and our powers, which are considerable, when they're not really going to do it. And so there's a moment when we have to have humility and we bow and we say, I don't know. And I'm trusting and I'm waiting and I'm going beyond my strategies to keep listening more deeply into this present heart that's connected with the depth of the Parajnaparamita, the depth of wisdom. It's not my wisdom, it's the wisdom of the universe, and it's there available to us as we listen. So this is all connected with these practices around this uh, holding of the name, and it's said there is a response. Responses happen, and the responses can happen, this is why Kuan Yin is known to be able to manifest in many different response bodies. If, if you can't hear from you know, a Dharma talk like this, maybe an animal, a dog will come into your life <laughs> and, you know, need rescuing, like where Kitty Sara and I lived, uh, have been living, and we still live. We have a little hermitage in KwaZulu. It's very difficult, been very difficult, and a little dog came into our life. He, we rescued him, or he, re he, found, he rescued us ultimately, but he, he came down from the mountains where we are on the, on the board of Lesotho, uh, escaped from a hunting party, a tiny little thing like this, and we, he was with us for 15 years, and by the end of his life, he, was, he would come in to the meditation hall, he had his own zafu, and he'd lay there and he'd snore, and everyone loved him, and... He was a complete bodhisattva, and when we would chant Kuan Yin, he'd lay on his back and his legs would kind of start. And if he didn't like the Dhamma talk, he'd get up and walk out. <laughs> he was a good teacher. And that was our Kuan Yin. 
that you know he broke our hearts you know when he finally got a brain tumor and we had to nurse him and they couldn't believe the local Zulus thought we were mad you know we would take this dog up to Johannesburg's eight hours drive to the best vet in the whole of South Africa and try and you know and of course the, the inevitable happened he, he his body broke down and he died you know and it was it was uh, some it was a being that had opened our heart you know beyond what any other being can do the human realm so complex but it's that it's those moments where the heart opens this is what the Kuan Yin energy is about it's about something that stabs the heart and opens beyond our strategies and our defenses and it connects us with things we have to be connected with to stay human the fact that we need to really feel our sensitivity and our vulnerability and our love you know it's hard to feel that sometimes when we're so in our heads strategizing about life it's hard to feel the mystery that we're in the midst of you know when we we you know we've thought about everything and have it all packaged up so these are some of the elements of this more prayerful aspect that appear in the in the um, Lotus Sutra and the Shurangama Sutra, which is one of the texts that is the foundational uh, sutra for the Zen school, you find a very different dimension of Kuan Yin. This is the depth, emptiness, uh, wisdom practice that marries into into the compassion practice. In the depth of the um, Shurangama Sutra, Shurangama means durable, durable samadhi. It's the unshakable samadhi of the recognition of the enlightened mind. It's the or awakenness. It's that, you know, usually when we practice samadhi or concentration and meditation, it's dependent on everything like, just don't say anything, everyone keep quiet, let's have a very still room, and then we, we practice, you know, which is great. But then we walk out into the streets of New York and, you know, it disappears. The Shurangama Samadhi is, the, is what the Buddha called the unshakable, um, the unshakable heart in touch with the world. It's not shake, it's in touch with the world. We feel the world, we experience the world, but it's not wobbled. Well, it might wobble, but it's not completely devastated. And so the Shurangama Sutra emerges when, I told the story the other night, so I won't go into it right now, but it emerges when basically the Buddha is trying to teach Ananda, one of his, his closest attendants, one of his disciples, and trying to help find a practice that Ananda can do because Ananda keeps getting himself into trouble. So he calls together 25 bodhisattvas and they discuss all their different practices. And at the end of the laying out of all their practices, uh, the, last pra- the last bodhisattva to talk about a practice suitable for Ananda is Avalokiteshvara or Kuan Yin. And Avalokiteshvara lays out the method of what's called listening to sound. Or listening to sound and noticing that this is one of the, te- this is one of the um, from the Shrangama Sutra, when Avalokiteshvara is laying out her method, his method, she said, the nature of sound is based in motion and stillness. One hears according according to whether there is sound. So there is sound and then we hear. With no sound there is said to be no hearing. But this does not mean the hearing nature is gone. 
In the absence of sound, the nature is not ended, nor does it arise in the presence of sound. Entirely beyond arising and ceasing, it is then truly eternal. Now the word eternal is not something you find. Actually, you do find um, the word eternal in the Theravada suttas, but it's not a preferred word, but it is one of the words that the Buddha used for Nibbana, the eternal. Uh, One of the metaphors, of course, all of these are describing something that can't be described. The awakened nature can't be described. It is beyond language, it is beyond form, it is beyond content. However, this this becomes this methodology of noticing that the sensory experiences hit the mind, hit the awareness, moments of sound, moments of thinking, moments of feeling. What is there that remains when those sensory experiences dissolve? Does that mean there's a complete absence of hearing, complete absence of knowing? And what is that? What is it that is hearing, that's knowing, that's thinking, that's feeling, or receiving and, and can experience and know the quality of the sensory experience. So this method is called returning the hearing. It means, it's basically the method of Zen. It's basically saying, instead of the mind running out through the objects of the world and, and getting lost in the world through the 10,000 things, it's turning the mind around. You know, in the... In the um, school of Zen in the Ramana Maharashi, one of the great saints of our era, called this the royal road. At a certain point, it's turning the mind back into the pure, what, what my teacher Ajahn Sumedha used to call pure subjectivity. We're used to looking at the world as an object to us, but who is the one looking? So it's really an investigation into that which is what, what is that that remains when we're not thinking, hearing, cogitating, running around? What is that? And so this is the subtlest method of using sound to go beyond sound. Using, contemplating thought to go beyond thought. Contemplating the limited to go beyond limitation. And that going beyond isn't going beyond into some situation out there, but it's going beyond in, into the depth of presence, into the immediacy. It's not really depth, but into the immediacy of being here, listening, in a, in a most utterly simple way. And this is really the premise then of the, the, the Heart Sutra, which is one, another great text where we find Avalokiteshvara appears, Kuan Yin appears. Avalokiteshvara appears and is giving a teaching to Sariputra. And uh, Sariputra, for those that know Theravada, is considered the foremost in wisdom in the Theravada schools of Buddhism. Uh, and in a certain way, this is a, a Mahayana text that's having a poke at the Theravada. <laughs> And, but it's also a revolutionary text that challenges the whole premise of awakening being the product of a process that one undertakes, a process of practice, a process of knowledge, a process of time, a process of attainment, and it returns, it, it, it focuses on the immediacy of awakening. And saying, actually, true awakening is nothing that can be, it can't be attained. 
It's not in time. It's not because of who you are in the hierarchy. It's not because of your position. It's not because you're sitting here teaching the Dharma. It's not because you're, you know, it's, the, it's an immediate, an immediate, sim- the, the most immediate and simple thing we can say about ourselves is that we are awake. We are present. We are aware. We are here. And the, the Heart Sutra begins with, with the, the phrase often, Iha Sariputra. So Avadikiteshvara is, in a way, this is the most essential aspect of this sutra. Avadikiteshvara is saying to Sariputra, who, who symbolizes in this context, in a way, the brilliance of the knowledge of wisdom, the brilliance of the mind that knows so much, knows all the texts, knows all the sutras, knows all, all the you know all that there is to know, and yet there's still some essential realization that still quite hasn't matured in this text. And so Avalokiteshvara is saying, "Look again, Sariputra. Iha Sariputra it means here, just is here. It's like a, a Zen, like Iha, just here. It's here. It's here. Keep coming here." <laughs> This is the message of the Sari, is here. Where are you going? You know, where do you think you're going to find it? You know, so keep coming back. Here, Sariputra, here. You know, uh, Avalokiteshvara is coursing the depth of Prajnaparamita, the text opens with, is coursing this Prajnaparamita. This, uh, I'm not going to go approach this, I just want to touch into some phrases here. I'm not approaching this from a scholastic point of view. There are others that do that, which is really wonderful. But, you know, to talk to this hearness, this awakefulness, as, Praj- as Avrakiteshvara courses the depth of Prajnaparamita, this Prajna, this depth of wisdom, this is an interesting word because when you break it down, the word, the word pra means is a, is a prefix that has the connotation of before. And ya or gnosis is to do with knowledge. It's a word for wisdom, prajna, panya, and pali. So it almost has the idea of before knowledge. It's that which is before you know stuff. It's that which is, you know, we know a lot of stuff. You know, we have the, this mind, it's called the manas aspect of the mind. It's the manas vinyana, it's the consciousness that makes the world an object. And it creates the 10,000, it discerns difference. It's a very important dimension of mind, and we're completely addicted to it and, and caught up in it. But it's only one dimension of, of mind consciousness. But it goes out and it creates difference. There's the subject, and there's the object, and there's a billion different kinds of objects, and they're all very different, and creates a very, you know, the complexity of the world, and knows a lot about the world and is able, through our ability and our knowledge of the world, to manipulate the world to the extent that we have created one of the most, in a certain way, extraordinary civilizations on the planet. It happens to be destroying the planet, but, you know, still, you have to hand it to what we've done. You know, great power of, of, of scientific and technological ability has manifested the realm. This is all the Manas Vijnana, this incredible capacity for for the for the mind to go out and create 
and to develop and hone the world to support our inquiry, our comforts, our, our survival. And yet there's something that, that this mind has never, doesn't quite know, which is who is the subject? What is this profound subjectivity? Who is this happening to? So this, this uh, when, when the, this prajna is actually the stripping away of the knowledge. It's entering, it's not a, a, a naive entry, but it's an entry into the fundamental simplicity of that which is just pure knowing. This is prajna paramita, before we know something. So you could say it's almost a state of unknowing. It's a state of mystery. When we enter the depth of being aware in our practice, and this is why it's so difficult for us because we're so addicted to having to know stuff, who we are and what we're doing. And so we're very addicted to our thinking, which is always describing ourselves to ourselves and describing each other to each other and describing the world. When we actually move out of that into this prajna, we're entering an, unknowing, an unknowingness, a stripping away in a way, it's an, it's a, it's, this is why this is a faith, or well, the Heart Sutra is another faith text in a way, because it's a leap. It's a leap beyond the distinctions of the world, and the, and the, and the sutra goes on. You know, form is emptiness, emptiness is form. And all of the, all of, it's, a, it's, a, it's a concise, Heart Sutra also means pith, like the pith of the Buddhist teaching. It goes through all the structures of the Buddhist teaching, which we know so well in the Theravada, and Sariputra will know so well. It's you know the ten links of dependent, twelve links of dependent origination, the six sense bases, the four noble truths, all the premise of the heart of the Buddha's teaching, and the Avalokiteshvara just demolishes them all. You know there is this this for awakening leap. You have to leap beyond the structures. Even the idea that you have a nose, eye, ear, tongue, taste, touch, all the distinctions. This is a shorthand for saying all the many ways that we define and make distinctions and make the world, things separate out. This is the activity, it's called papancha, that which creates complexity. And say, so actually, that's not really a reality. That is a certain reality, but it's not depth reality. It's not the reality of prajna. You can't have a nose without a face. You can't have a face without a body. You can't have a body without the earth. You can't have the earth without the oceans. You can't have the oceans without... It's all one thing. And yet our minds, the manas vinyana says, no, it's 10,000 things and it's all different for me. It's all an object to me. And I either, if you excuse my language, as Ken Wilber says, and when things are an object to the mind, or to, you know, when, there's, when we live in an objective world, you're either going to fuck it or kill it. You know, that is the primitive mind, and that's kind of what we're doing. You know, it's like we grab it and we consume it, or, we, or it's a threat to us. And that's the mind that's, that doesn't know the heart of the intimacy of all things. It hasn't made that leap yet. I had a friend um, when I was living in the monastery um, for many years. One of the things that I was involved with was um, I started to um, 
myself and a fellow nun, we started to uh, create these um, days for families and children because we, we were, you know, there were people would come to the families would come to the monastery and there wasn't much for kids to do. So we started to do these, you know, these events and it grew into as kind of huge summer camps. You know, like, um, people come and camp and it became this big deal and a, and a very dear friend of mine had um, a, a child that she would bring and uh, the child was about wasn't even a year old maybe maybe it was about 16 months old young hasn't spoken yet a baby basically and <laughs> and this uh, the, during one of these camps these summer camps this was in the UK and people camping out we had all these activities the baby got really sick and sick and sick and sick and, and then at a certain point we had to take the baby to hospital and then the baby went into seizure and then we had to rush the baby down to Guy's Hospital in London um, because suddenly the whole thing shifted from well maybe the baby's got flu into something very severe happening and by the time the baby got to the hospital it was actually diagnosed as having a terminal brain tumour and the, the, the night that we arrived in the hospital actually the baby died we couldn't, you know, nothing could be done. It was like sudden. Just arrived at this great, big, you know, um, joyous occasion, and in the middle of the whole thing, we had a death. So that that was obviously very traumatic and and very um, powerful for all of us. And we went through that process. And I was, you know, this friend would come and just hang out the monastery as a way of just trying to uh, ground and be with herself in the process of her grief. And then one day she said to me, you know, this was like many years later, we went on pilgrimage together, probably about five years later to India, and we were traveling around. She said, you know, you know, whenever I thought about my baby, when I think about my baby as separate from me, when I start thinking, I just feel overwhelmed with grief and pain and loss. But when I actually listen, when I deeply listen, my baby's listening too. And... and uh, you know, this is the place of the Kuan Yin heart. It's when we're really listening, this is where we all are. We're in the same place. This is the same heart. You know, there is no ultimate distinctions. Yes, there are distinctions and they need to be acknowledged and boundaries and so on. But ultimately, that's not reality. Ultimately, this same heart is present and aware and listening in me as it is in you, as it is in all beings. And to awaken to that, which is what the Heart Sutra is inviting us to do, it shifts the whole ball game. We can no longer hold the world in such an objective way. You know, it's not happening out there anymore, it's happening in here. It's said in the Shurangama Sutra, actually it's Kuan Yin's, when she's teaching this awakening, in the Shrangama Sutra, this is her moment of awakening and this is how she describes it. She said, through this method of listening and deep listening, I just said that twice, didn't I? Through this method of deepening into the listening, of returning the sounds back, returning everything back to this awareness, fundamental awareness, she said, suddenly I transcended the mundane and transcendental worlds. So she all the distinctions, it was a, this leap beyond and throughout ten directions of perfect brightness prevailed. The fundamental nature is radiant, luminous, 
what the, the Buddha called the uh, apabhasara jitta. The fundamental nature of the moment of the heart is a radiancy, it's presence. And the, the Buddha said in the Mula Sutta, Vimutisara Sabe Dhamma, which means that the fundamental nature of all conditionality is Vimuti, is already free, is already unconstricted. So in every moment, however constricted, there is, if we can listen in the right way, realize in the right way, there is wakefulness, there's awareness, there's radiancy. This was recognized and described as a perfect brightness prevailed. I obtained two supreme states from my awakening. This is Kuan Yin from the Shrangama Sutra. First, I was united with the fundamental, wonderfully enlightened mind of all the Buddhas. No distinction. Your moments of awakening are the same as all the Buddhas. Maybe not the expression, <laughs> but it's the same taste. And then secondly, I gained a strength of compassion equal to the Buddhas as I was able to unite, or I was united with all living beings and I gained a kind regard for all living beings. So this is the other dimension of awakening, is the non-dual understanding of the perfect intimacy of all living beings. The same listening, the same heart. And it, you know, it's hard, to dis- it's hard then to hold beings, whether creatures, animals, or living beings, or humans, as completely other to this one heart. In the apartheid system, which I lived in the residue of apartheid when I went to South Africa in 1994, just as the political changes happened. Apartheid means a part was built on this manas vinyana at its most craziness, sick and weird and distorted, to separate everything out and everyone out according to race. I mean, to the extent that even the dogs were racially designated. It, it was a sort of the madness and sickness of the human mind gone to extreme. And, you know, when, when you live in that kind of society and when you, um, you know, the, 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 one of the residues that happens or what happens, I mean, in a certain way, the fallout from that, the, you know, the, the devastation from that, you sort of, you ship 90% of the population off the best lands and have 10% of the population having most of the assets and most of the best lands, most of the best education, and you, def- you justify that through dehumanizing the other 90% or 80% or whatever it was, 40 million Africans, 5 million whites, you know, so it's, it's, not, a, it's not a level playing field by any means or, or a proportional percentage of, of division of assets. You know, when you've, you actually legislate a system like that, the residue is de- devastation. And, um, you know, and this is just an extreme of what's happened in colonialism over the last hundred year, hundreds of years. It's not just, it just became legislated in a very extreme way. I mean, there's certain versions of it here um, that, that have, uh, America is still recovering from or trying to. And, I've been living in the South for many coming in and out for 20 years and living there for four years. And um, so, you know, it's not too far removed what happened in South Africa to your own history here. But anyway, without going into all of of that in in a prolonged way, because we know what we're talking about, is, um, and hopefully if we don't, then please do some research. do one's homework on our history. But what actually happens in those systems is the subtler damage is harder to see. 
you know, because it, it, what is the damage is that one has to defend against one's heart. You have to defend from the heart that actually knows the oneness of all things. And so there's this tremendous violence that's done inwardly. The violence is expressed outwardly, but also there's an inner violence as we defend from the knowledge of our oneness. And this is really, when we look at something like the Heart Sutra, it's a text that challenges us, can we take this leap? And more than ever, the times we're in, can we take this leap? Beyond our obsession with a dualism that we're married to, where we refuse to see that as a truth, of course, but we refuse to see this deeper interconnectedness. And when we, uh, you know, we refuse to see that, then we, we, in a way, one of the karmic results of that is we feel the wound to our heart, the wound, if you forgive me for saying it in a Buddhist context, to our soul. And that deeper part of our being that knows its connection to the earth, to each other, to all creatures, to the plants, and feels itself in relationship to everything, but is somehow divorced because of our addictiveness to our objectifying the world and controlling everything. So the Buddha had a, a moment of um, waking up, and as um, in the Heart Sutra, it goes on to say, you know, that the Bodhisattva, in the waking up, in the moment of waking up, the Bodhisattva leaves all dream thinking far behind. It's just like we're in a dream. We're dreaming our lives. We're dreaming the world. And we're dreaming and continuing the patterns of our dream. When we wake up, it's, a, it's like a cold shower. It's like, what are we in now? What's happening? You know, and there's a moment when the, in the Buddha's life when he, um, he leaves the palace for a moment, if you remember. It's an archetypal story. And he goes outside and he sees the four signs. He sees a sick person a decrepit, aged person, which isn't so beautiful to see. Um, you know, we start off not looking too bad, and by the time we get older, it's not so pretty anymore. <laughs> Something, there's a billion dollar industry to try and avoid the consequences of the inevitable aging of the body. And he sees a corpse, which is very shocking. And, and he sees the fourth heavenly messenger is a, is a sadhu or a seeker, which sort of, designates or symbolizes a path, another possibility. But when he, you know, he sees these signs, and it said that it was a shock, and that the vanity of youth, the vanity of life, the vanity of permanence left him at that moment. So that was like a moment of, and it shifted his whole. You know, when, when, what, what, what I've been considering is this is where we are in on a now on a global level, the same, the same process. Uh, we, you know, we, we've in a way engaged this way of awakening in a certain way about our individual process, but when we open our eyes out of our dream state and we look around, we find the earth displaying symptoms of decay, of death, and it's a shock. You know, it's, we're not waking up out of our dream state anymore into the American dream. We're waking up into a nightmare. It's not easy to wake into a nightmare and to see that the, the oceans are so devastated. 
that they're on the verge of collapse, that all the fish have nearly been fished, that all the coral reefs are nearly dead, that the, earth, the oceans are so acidified, there's so much acid that even the shells of crabs and things are beginning to dissolve. So I was reading just the other day that our life depends the weather patterns, the, the, the absorption of CO2, the giving of oxygen depends on the great oceans. That the Amazon forests, which are, of course, as we know, the lungs of the earth, are being decimated at you know, football fields a day, as we know, just on all this diversity and biodiversity of life is just being decimated for huge, huge fields of the most heartless and cruel um, husbandry of, it's not even husbandry, but sort of cattle concentration camps actually. So we can continue our diets that are killing the planet. You know, that the ice caps are melting at such a rate that the, that the oceans, you experience that here in New York, the shifts of the changes of weather. These are the symptoms of the same way that the body, the Buddha saw his personal body displaying symptoms um, of, a, of, of decay. It woke him up, we're experiencing that now. It's not anymore about us, our personal trip. We're seeing that as a collective, globally. We're seeing our earth body in its death throes. I don't think it will probably die, but I think it will kill us off before, <laughs> before it. But we can do a lot of damage on the way. We're seeing mass extinction of species in a way that's never happened before, as if we were not a species. You know, the denial is so deep in all of us. There's something that um, I was reading the other day from a very um, guy called Chris Hedges. You know Chris Hedges? Chris Hedges is a Pulitzer Prize winner. He's, a, he's an American uh, journalist. Um, pretty radical. He actually wrote a radical piece. It wasn't actually that radical, it was just true. He wrote this piece about before America went into Iraq, just basically saying this is not a good idea uh, for the New York Times. This is not really um, based on any truth. And for that, um, he was reprimanded and very soon after that left um, New York Times as one of their journalists. And now he writes for more fringe, like Truth Dig and these various other uh, publications. Um, and he's written a number of books, a number of articles um, about what's happening. This is something that he said uh, recently. The human species, led by white Europeans and Euro-Americans, has been on a 500-year-long planet-wide rampage of conquering, plundering, looting, exploiting, and polluting, as well as killing the indigenous communities that stood in the way but the game is up. The technical and scientific forces that created a life of unparalleled luxury, as well as un unrivaled military and economic power, the, the, the military power that we have now is just, I mean, why do we need that? <laughs> For the industrial elites are the forces that now doom us. The mania for ceaseless economic expansion and exploitation has become a curse, a death sentence. But even as our economic and environmental systems unravel, after the hottest year in 48 states since record-keeping began 107 years ago, this is written after the summer of last year, 
we lack the emotional and intellectual creativity to shut down the engine of global capitalism. We have bound ourselves to this doomsday machine that grinds on forward. And in, the, and in another report that came out that was actually made my hair stand on end, this was from um, the scientific journal Nature, it came out last year, was, was posted up on um, Common Dreams. Humankind is facing an imminent threat of extinction, according to new research released on Wednesday by the science journal Nature. The report approaching a state shift in the Earth's biosphere reveals that our planet's biosphere is, stealing, is steadily approaching a tipping point, meaning all ecosystems are nearing sudden and irreversible change that will not be conducive to human life. We have reason to believe the change may be abrupt and surprising, said co-researcher Anne Moores, a professor of biodiversity at Simon Fraser University in Canada's British Columbia. The authors describe what they see as a fast-paced state shift once the tipping point is reached, which contrasts with the mainstream view that environmental change will take centuries. It's a question of whether it's going to be manageable change or abrupt change, and we have reason to believe the change may be abrupt and surprising. This is the result of 22 scientists delivering this report. The data suggests that there will be a reduction in biodiversity and severe impacts on much of what we depend on to sustain our quality of life, including, for example, fisheries, agriculture, forest products, and clean water. This could happen within just a few generations. My colleagues who study climate-induced changes through the Earth's history are more than pretty worried, he said. Uh, this is uh, Anthony Bronowski, professor of integrative biology at the Center, uh, University of California, Berkeley. Uh, University of Berkeley, California, sorry. In fact, some of my colleagues are terrified. Uh, so it goes on. We don't, this is, we know this, right? I am, I'm sort of, you know, if we don't, again, please do the research. This is, this, this is the world we are waking up to when we, we're awakening into this situation um, globally where we can't really, we, I'm not sure we have the luxury to hide away in our little meditation cubicles. <laughs> I'm not sure what it means in terms of a collective response for practitioners or for those awakening, I, th I would like to see more of a dialogue about what it means and hopefully tonight with Andrew, if you're here, we'll have something more of that dialogue together. But it means something. It means we have to respond. There's something about, you know, really the stakes have never been so high and that there is the capacity to effect change, that we have the power to bring change. We just don't have either, you know, the political will, it seems, or sometimes the personal will, because we're very seduced by our luxurious and comfortable lives. And they're, they're most, even if we don't, you know, if we scrape and scrim, these, our lifestyles are far more comfortable than ever our ancestors had it. So this, there's a moment in, when uh, Avalokiteshvara, there's a lovely Tibetan story about Avalokiteshvara. Um, Avalokiteshvara decides, as a great bodhisattva, has taken these huge vows and decides to go practice and to help bring the Tibetans uh, into the Dharma. So he goes to Tibet and starts to practice and starts to practice compassion. And then after a lifetime realizes that actually nothing much has changed 
the country is still beset by violence and difficulty and the Dharma hasn't really infiltrated. And so he gets a bit discouraged and decides to, well, maybe next lifetime it will improve and comes back, does another whole lifetime of practice and tries to teach and nothing much happens. And next lifetime and says, well, I'll sit it out for a lifetime. I'll just sit it out in a cave and just sort of, you know, as you do, it's like, I can't stand it anymore. <laughs> I'm just going to retreat from this whole madness. And sometimes one does have to do that and pull the plug. And then it's said that at a certain point, Avalokiteshvara just absolutely starts to weep. He can't, can't do it. It's just, it's just too appalling. It's just too devastating. It's just too, it's that moment when we really wake up. And we wake up not from the dream into beauty, but we wake up into the terror and the horror of it. You know, and this is what, what you know, there's plenty of beauty and joy, but let's be realistic what we're in now. And when we really wake up, it means we see. We're not deluding ourselves. We're not trying to tell ourselves pretty stories anymore. We're seeing. This is what enlightenment is, is to see reality, to see clearly, not just some souped-up reality on some other plane, but what's right before us, what we're in the midst of. And it's heartbreaking. You know, we don't know what to do. And it's said at that moment that Avalokiteshvara's head just shattered, just completely shattered, and he, she was just strewn across the land in these pieces. It couldn't contain the reality of this tremendous heart that wants so much to offer and to heal and to, you know, respond within the world. And the, the forces against that heart are just so overwhelming and so devastating that it can't be done. And at that moment, the, there's a meltdown. And it's said that Avalokiteshvara's guru descends from the heavens or wherever gurus hang out. Uh, Amitabha Buddha comes down and says, what's the matter? You know, what's the problem? And Avalokiteshvara says, I can't do it. You know, it's just too difficult. And Amitabha, Amitabha Buddha says, well, you know, you're a bit too ambitious in your vows. You know, you, you, know, you, should, uh, you should perhaps step down a bit and be a bit, I don't know what Amitabha, I'm just making it up, but anyway, Amitabha Buddha gets all the pieces from Avalokiteshvara's shatteredness and starts to recreate Avalokiteshvara until he has 11 great heads and a thousand hands and eyes and, and is able, within those hands and eyes, is able to carry all sorts of miraculous and effective responses, you know, like axes and and spears to cut through the obstructions and a willow branch to sweep away the subtler difficulties and a, va a vase full of sweet dew to just calm and soothe and a lasso to tie up demonic energies and a little arrow to pierce the heart of living beings with truth and books to bring knowledge and so that, the, that there's this flexibility and ability to respond. And, and Avalokiteshvara gets remodeled and remade and gets clearer and wiser and more powerful and more warrior-like. And yet Avalokiteshvara is the bodhisattva of compassion, so all the responses, even if they're fierce, and some of them are, have compassion within them, have tenderness within them. The tender heart is not lost. And so this, this is the metaphor for us. This is 
when we, you know, when we get shattered, and we will get shattered, either in our personal lives, by what we meet, we will be shattered. There is no doubt. We are still in a delusion of carrying on every day, but we will be shattered by what's happening on the planet. The karma is now so extreme. It's inescapable. And, you know, it will shatter us. And it has to shatter us. It has to shatter this mind, this hubris that we've had to think that we can control everything, that we can dominate everything, that we can patent everything down to the last seed. This is not the Dharma. We've lost the Dharma. This is not the way of the Dharma. This is not the way of the sacred. This is not the way of truth. This is the way of the egomania that's destroying everything. So we will be shattered. I don't know what will be left from the shattering, but each shattering in small or big ways is in ultimately is the the means through which we become reshaped. You know, the means through which we refine we find our ability to respond more in a more authentic way, in a way that's more in tune with the Dharma, in a way that doesn't lose heart, that maintains our human capacity, that is sensitive, that knows its ultimate oneness with all living beings with all plants, with all creatures, with this great earth. So then we can be beings that, rather than exploit, we can be beings that protect, rather than demand endlessly to be, you know, our desires, our endless desires, we can be beings that can nourish, every living seed, wherever we find it, within ourselves, within our communities, and upon our earth. So let's just take a a break for about five minutes, a stretch break. Let's maintain silence while we take our break, and then we're going to come back in to do a little bit of process work together around some of these themes. Okay. this will work. Um, what do I, 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 I'd like to, um, what I'm, what I'm, sorry, I'm thinking out loud here. Um, I'll start again. <laughs> uh, I'd like us to break into smaller groups. And I'm just counting the numbers. I think it would work to break into groups of three. And I'm going to introduce you to a practice. I'm, some of you are probably familiar to a similar practice, um, similar type practice, which is, uh, which is a sort of depth inquiry practice. It's something that I, um, when I did the the work, the, the um, psycho awareness, psycho spiritual awareness work that I trained in in the UK, it's a method called the Kruner, Kruner Institute, uh, called core process therapy. We're not going to do therapeutic work, but I want to use some of the methods, adapted a little bit to work together to inquire how how we are and what we're with. Um, when we consider the context that we're living in, and when we consider what's really happening here globally in terms of the the shift of climate, if we can just come out of a little bit more of our denial about what's happening, all the different stories that we might be telling ourselves, 
There is something happening on our globe at the moment that is truly shifting everything. You know, the the lack of sustainability that we're heading into in terms of the resources that we have, the the tremendous power of the fossil fuel industries to hold our whole planet to ransom and to undermine the possibilities of really innovative and powerful technologies to help replace our, our addiction to a resource that's running out and that we have to to get in you know from the earth in more desperate and devastating ways whether it be oil coal or gas i know it's a dilemma and i don't you know really want to drive us into the politics and discussions about the ins and outs of that that's one place we could go but just to point to the realities of what we're living in is you know if we had for example, 350, as you know, 350.org is a very powerful movement that's developing, but meaning that if we have lived with 350 parts per million of carbon dioxide within the atmosphere, then that's about good for our sustainability. We're now nearing a 400. It's just showing up in the Arctic. And, you know, this, this is very dangerous. And if it increases, it basically becomes an atmosphere that's unsustainable for life. We know that the oceans are heating up. We know that the oceans are dying. We know that there's, you know, there's just overwhelm of all the systems that we've relied on, and we're still continuing. We're continuing our drive to destruction and death. We know the species that are dying every day. I've just been, as you know, I'm connected quite profoundly with what's happening in South Africa and the demand for rhino horn and elephant tusk is basically bringing in about an extinction if nothing if something doesn't stop within the next few years these animals that have been around for 50 million years of rhinos they'll be gone you know and that's just one of many that go day after day after day many that we don't even notice we don't even blink an eye this is a kind of world you know and there's just on every level there's this this these these you know, I don't have to talk to you about climate change in terms of what happened here in New York before in November with the with the um, the you know the Sandy that you had and the droughts that you've been experiencing here in the states and England. The weather, the climate has completely radically changed, and I think you can we notice it there more because it's such a small country. You know, the the, the floods and the droughts even earthquakes, even tornadoes, which we've never, ever had. I never grew up having earthquakes and little earthquakes and tornadoes in, in Hobbitland. And we never had these huge snowstorms in that way. We never had the earth drying up and we never had, you know, cities flooded and swans sort of floating down High Street because the lakes have flooded and the ponds have flooded and, you know, all of these weird signs of our times. This is the context we're in, and you know, it's increasing. I experience it as some kind of, um, you know, the body feels it. Whatever the mind is doing in its denials, and as we carry on, and um, you know, the the body, I feel there's this this stress, you know, this this um, experience of increasing intensity. We're living in increasingly intense times. And yet in the midst of that, we, we have to find our way of being that stays human, that stays present, that doesn't freak out, that's effective, and that considers what's the best response to make and doesn't spend the next hundred years considering because we don't have a hundred years. 
you know. So all of this context and in terms of the Dhamma, how do we bring our Dharma practice to bear upon the situation? So we're not just practicing the Dharma to um, shore up our little ideal world somewhere, which is, you know, fair enough, but I think the world will crash in upon us, and it does anyway, even if we do shore up our little world, it crashes in on us. And it's not to say that we shouldn't use the Dharma to take times to retreat, to resource, and to strengthen ourselves. But there is a conundrum, is, you know, how do we bring this, these practices that have historically really been about based in the ethos in some ways of removing oneself from the world and just letting the world carry on in its own sweet way, <laughs> you know, and then doing a little bit here and there as best as you can. That is often the historical context, although, you know, if you look at the Buddha, he definitely was a radical. He definitely um, kind of burnt down a civilization in a certain way by taking on all sorts of issues and revolutionizing this, the social structure that he lived within. So he wasn't a mouse, you know, nothing against mice, but he wasn't hiding away. He was out there as a lion. He was known as the lion, um, responding to, to the environment, you know. So it's a great model for practice, you know, to have courage. So these kinds of themes, I'm just sort of seeding you with, with these, you know, how do we marry, what do we, how do we bring what is it, you know, the depth of silence and introspection, which has, it needs careful cultivation to, to do this practice sometimes. It does mean we have to withdraw from the world. And yet, you know, we look at the times we're in and what's happening and the increase, how, how it's demanding for us to wake up. It's like shouting for us to wake up and be more responsible and to, to, to enact the sacred within all things and to respect the sacred. So how do we bring all that together? So these are just different thoughts that I'm throwing out. What I'd like you to do is, is to break into the groups after listening to me this morning and the different themes I've touched into and whatever resonates for, for you in terms of what I've touched into, to have a couple of inquiry questions. And, and one of them is just to say what's present for you. What is present for you? And just seeing and then talking to what is present for you. We each have a turn to talk with what is present for you as you consider the impact of just the themes I'm touching on, the impact of our times, and your love of the practice. What is present for you in that mix now, here and now? What is present for you? And just to, to speak to that. And, and um, when we listen and when we hold this practice together of, of inquiry to really practice as we're doing it. So we're practicing the listening of Avalokiteshvara. I like to think of it, when I used to do a therapy practice, which I don't do anymore because I'm not geographically stable enough, um, but I used to like to think of setting up my, my practice as Kuan Yin listening to Kuan Yin. Like I would be Kuan Yin, but also my client would be Kuan Yin. And we were just like, Kuan Yin listening to Kuan Yin, we're just listening to the stuff, you know, and eventually you keep listening and you keep putting awareness in the mix, you keep putting awareness mixed with, you know, these Brahma Viharas, with equanimity, with compassion, with kind. you keep listening, you keep bringing, and then out of that, out of that deeper uh, fulcrum of awareness, wisdom emerges, not you thinking about how to fix the situation, which is often the same old, same old, and doesn't really do much, but it's like, and those quantum shifts, 
So we're, we're exploring how can we listen in that way. We listen as Kuan Yin. We're listening beyond our reactions, beyond the manas vinyana, which is constantly, it's very smart, <laughs> has all the answers. Yes, so thank you for that. That was very helpful and very clever. But you know, let me just listen again and listen again. So if we can listen to ourselves and our process and we listen into the question, we listen to the other that's speaking. Okay, so we just try and explore as a practice. We listen to what's called the field. When we're in, we're in relationship here, there's me and you, but there's something called the field of what's created amongst us. And, and as we listen into the field, all sorts of information is there. All sorts of things are there <laughs> for us to hear, you know. Um, and this is something we can attune, we need to attune into as practitioners. And practicing mindfulness is not just to the particular in your body sensation and in the moment, but it's, it's mindfulness is also global. We have to train the mind, mindfulness to be a global awareness what's happening around us, and that is part of what feeds into the discernment and decanting of wisdom. So we're breaking two groups, and I think we might make three, maybe there might be a group of four. <coughs> Let's do that first. Let's, can you, if you can find a group um, to be with, three or four people, and then I'll guide you through the next bit. So um, the question is, what's present for you now? What's present for you now? We're just going to work with that question. We're going to give each other about five minutes. I can ring the bell, and we'll have one group of four, so you're going to go over by five, and I'll track that for you. So you don't have to worry about keeping time. I'll keep the time for you. And I'd like to really keep the form quite carefully so we can actually get a little more depth rather than just discussing about stuff. So that you can, when you asked, one of you will ask the question, one of you will receive the question, and the other one or two people will just be holding the witness position. And your job as witness is to really focus on this quality of listening, so you're helping to deepen the equality of awareness within your group. The one that's asking the question, just really stay with the person that you're asking. And the one that's being asked the question, to really, what is present for you now, to really see what's present for you, you know, in terms of feelings or thoughts or sensation or whatever's present for you, and then to speak from that. And trying to relate, if possible, if it's not present for you, don't worry about it, anything from what I've been talking about, you know, what's present for you now. And then we'll speak for about five minutes about what's present for you in relationship. It's just going to be too long a question to say what's present for you now when you think about, you know, the world and you know. But just what's present for you now, shorthand, particularly focusing on what's present for you now when you consider these themes of the context of our global meltdown in terms of climate, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And when you think, you know, when you consider your practice and how you are in relationship to that. So it's that sort of territory, what's present for you now in regards to that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes, John? It's not a repeating diamond heart type question because I, 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 I'd like, you can repeat the question but not in quite, you know the diamond heart where you keep going at it? Don't do it like that. That is a great method by the way but I, want, I wanted to just, you know, slow it down a bit more and so that 
you can ask the question from time to time, but not necessarily in quite quite such a repeating way. And because um, you only have about five minutes to speak, so you don't need to ask it a lot. So it's just what's present for you now. And after five minutes, I'll ring the bell and just move to the next person, and then to the next person. So can you just just decide before I ring the bell and start? Just need to decide who's going to ask the question and who's going to answer the question. So if you're, if you're going to ask someone the question, just sit right opposite them so you can really hold them energetically as well. That's it, that's great. And then once you've sorted that out, just come back to your breath. And remembering this fundamental practice of being with your breath, your feet on the ground, your butt on the cushion. It's what's happening now. Okay, so just tuning in to, taking a few minutes to tune in to what you're present with. And then when I ring the bell, you can start the inquiry. Thank you. So just taking a few moments in silence to allow whatever was said and whatever was received to settle. So then you can change the person that was being ask the question that was speaking can go to the witness position. The witness can uh, actually I don't know but either you ask the question or receive the question. The one that's speaking that has just spoken you can just go into the witness position. And then work it out who's going to do the asking and the receiving. And again, as you settle into the new formation, just take a few minutes to bring mindfulness, attention to the breath, to the body, to the inner feeling of what's present for you within the feeling tones within the heart, being aware of your group, being aware of the circumstance you're in here, this listening.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.